Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Brighton. We are back with Pride and Prejudice today as our starting point. Kitty and Lydia have come to a town not far from Longbourn to meet Elizabeth and Jane and Mariah, don't forget about Mariah, (laughs) as they return from their travels. They all sit down for lunch together, and Lydia bemoans the fact that the soldiers that have been encamped at Meryton are now being moved on to Brighton. And so here is the passage from the book. Are they indeed? cried Elizabeth with the greatest satisfaction. And then Lydia says this. They are going to be encamped near Brighton, and I do so want Papa to take us there for the summer. It would be such a delicious scheme. And I dare say it would hardly cost anything at all. Mama would like to go too, of all things. Only think what a miserable summer else we shall have. Yes, thought Elizabeth, that would be a delightful scheme indeed, and completely due for us at once. Good heaven, Brighton and a whole camp full of soldiers to us, who have been overset already by one poor regiment of militia and the monthly balls of Meryton. And I love, I love that it is in the novel, it's Lizzie, who says a whole camp full of soldiers, but in the 1995 adaptation, you know, she says something like that. And then Lydia's like, a whole camp full of soldiers. And Lizzie's like, no, this is not a good idea. So Brighton is a seaside resort town on the south coast of England in the county of East Sussex. It's about 50 miles or 80 kilometers, depending on your route, south of London. More importantly, in the context of Pride and Prejudice, it's nearly 80 miles or 130 kilometers south of Hertfordshire. And it frames Lydia's assertion that it would hardly cost anything as pretty absurd since the travel alone for their entire family of seven people would have been quite the undertaking. Hardly cost a thing, really. Just to transport seven people, all of their servants, all of their luggage, no problem. Not a problem at all. (laughs) There was no jet blue in this time. Let's get into some of the history of Brighton. So for most of the 16th and 17th centuries, Brighton was a fishing village. One of its earliest claims to fame was that according to tradition, Charles II spent a night there in Brighton during his escape to France. That's just kind of the lore around Brighton before this time. But in the 1740s, Brighton became a location of interest as a health destination thanks to Dr. Richard Russell the 18th century physician who encouraged his patients to use a form of water therapy, which included drinking salt water and also sea bathing. So he really sets off this massive craze and uses Brighton as the base for his treatments. This is why Mrs. Bennett has that moment later when she says, a little sea bathing would set me up forever. (laughs) And it's because Brighton is pretty much the it town for medicinal sea bathing at this point. It's the cool place to go get your dip in the water. And we fully anticipate a dedicated episode to sea bathing and the medical beliefs around it at this time, sometime during the summer, you know, as is seasonally appropriate. So stay tuned for that. After this craze for Brighton as a seaside kind of resort, Brighton becomes patronized by famous people such as Fanny Burney or Samuel Johnson during the mid-1700s. And in 1783, Brighton's biggest patron... George, the Prince of Wales, had his first visit. And in the summer of 1793, while serving in the militia, Jane Austen's brother, Henry, was in Brighton with his regiment, the Oxfordshires, 
So there's the family connection, there's the prince connection. Brighton really does take off after, you know, in the late 1700s. There are a couple of specific landmarks that need to be discussed in order to really get a sense of Brighton and just what was going on there during this time. And the first is undoubtedly the Royal Pavilion. Yes, the Royal Pavilion is one of Brighton's most stunning landmarks since it is a colossal estate built in a unique Indo-Saracenic architectural style on the outside and a very distinctly Chinese style on the interior. It's impossible to miss. It's one of the distinguishing features of Brighton. But the Royal Pavilion actually started out as a relatively humble, double-fronted two-story farmhouse in the 1770s. And the Prince of Wales leased that from Thomas Kemp. In 1787, the prince asked his architect, Henry Holland, to enlarge the estate. And so Holland more than doubles the original building by constructing a duplicate farmhouse next to it and then connecting the two with a really large domed rotunda called the saloon. There were extensive other additions and alterations, but by the end of this building phase in 1788, the building was renamed the Marine Pavilion and it's starting to look pretty grand. Just the name Marine Pavilion, that is something at Epcot. Yes. That is a that is a Disney yes. World feature. <laughs> In 1801, Prinny, which was how George, the Prince of Wales, was known, came back to the project, expanding on interior decorations with Holland's guidance, as was one of Holland's colleagues, William Porton, who then started to take over. And in 1805, Humphrey Repton, who we mentioned in our episode on Blaise Castle, really just our favorite landscape architect right. here on The Thing About Austin, <laughs> he was called in to consult on the landscape. According to Historic England's listing on the Royal Pavilion, the idea for redesigning the Marine Pavilion as an Indian palace can be dated to the years 1803 to 1805 during the Porton-Repton collaboration. And I just want to note with all of this, there is really a lot of appropriation and exoticization going on here. It all seems very much based on whatever Prinny's current fancy or whim was and just kind of hodgepodging various aspects of these other cultures together. Right. It's definitely like their version of what these things look like. Yeah, their version of what they think it is in their head. Again, very much Prinny's Regency Amusement Park. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the final phase of building on this pavilion started in 1811, when the prince became the regent. And so the architect James Wyatt started a new building phase. And then in 1815, John Nash began the massive exterior work that gives the building the appearance that it has today. So according to the Royal Pavilion Museum, Nash superimposed a cast iron frame onto Holland's earlier construction to support a magnificent vista of minarets, domes, and pinnacles on the exterior. And no expense was spared on the interior, with many rooms, galleries, and corridors being carefully decorated with opulent decoration and exquisite furnishings. There is just no expense spared anywhere in this project. It's just over the top in every way conceivable. Because of all of this, the pavilion was hugely unpopular with the general public at the time and was seen as a giant waste of money, especially when it was needed elsewhere and there were ordinary citizens struggling to provide for their families. Robert Morrison notes in his book, The Regency Years, that the entire scheme provoked outrage, and to many, the pavilion quickly became the most potent example of how egregiously out of touch the region was. Zing! Yeah. Yeah. Not big fans of Prinny. 
So that I mean, we've we've been talking a lot about the architecture. So what does this have to do specifically with Austin and Pride and Prejudice? Well, during this time, the prince would host massive balls and gatherings that really epitomized his dedication to opulence, frivolity, and dissipation. And he was dedicated to those things. Really dedicated to these things. And as a result, Brighton, as a destination for the wealthy, was associated with this kind of social decadence, not making him super popular. Yeah. And in Heather Weiss's article that's titled, Brighton Possesses All the Requisites for Either Amusement or Dissipation, Frivolity in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, delightful title, she writes that, and here's, here's kind of an extended quote here, she says, a trip to Brighton would have very much resembled a trip to London, but with more emphasis on frivolous enjoyment than on the propriety of London. The revelry that characterizes Brighton also gives credence to Elizabeth's fears, while it is entirely plausible that Elizabeth's apprehension for Lydia's well-being at Brighton is connected solely to the presence of the militia there, it is much more understandable in view of the frivolity and dissipation that characterized the city. Brighton's permissive atmosphere would have greatly exacerbated Lydia's propensity for ill manners and self-indulgence. So Weiss here kind of saying like, there's a lot of nuance to the references to Brighton. It's where you go to just do whatever you Mm -hmm, want. mm -hmm. If Prinny's doing it, you can do it, basically. Exactly. And he was basically doing everything. (laughs) So there's definitely the sense that Brighton as a town has a lot of cultural connotations that Austin expects her readers to be picking up on here. Contemporaneous readers would have understood that Brighton, you know, it's a bit of a Sin City kind of situation. What happens in Brighton stays at Brighton. Exactly. Another really important aspect of the city and one of the lesser known important sites in Brighton, especially in the context of Pride and Prejudice, is the Preston Barracks. The barracks were completed in 1793, and there was an infantry barracks built in Church Street in Brighton, and then a much larger artillery and cavalry barracks built near the city of Preston, like just outside of Brighton. And when I say it was a large barracks, I mean, they built stables for over 1,000 horses. These barracks were, of course, built largely out of the fear of invasion from France during this kind of revolutionary period. So when Lizzie mentions a whole camp of soldiers in Brighton, she's not joking. I mean, again, this is definitely what Lydia imagines as part of her time in Brighton. You know, this is what she's envisioning it's going to be like. Once her friend invites her to Brighton, and remember, she's going specifically with Colonel Forster and his wife, so she'd be going with the militia. You know, she's going to have close proximity to these barracks. She has an entire fantasy about how this is going to go down. And I love that Austin actually lets us see Lydia's fantasy here. So this is, this is a quote from the book. In Lydia's imagination, a visit to Brighton comprised every possibility of earthly happiness. She saw, with the creative eye of fancy, the streets of that gay bathing place covered with officers. She saw herself the object of attention to tens and to scores of them at present unknown. She saw all the glories of the camp, its tents stretched forth in beauteous uniformity of lines, crowded with the young and the gay, and dazzling with scarlet. And, to complete the view, she saw herself, seated beneath a tent, tenderly flirting with at least six officers at once. The best part is that she's tenderly flirting, but with six of you at one time. So listen, you are each equally important to me. Okay. Each of you is my favorite. It's fine. (laughs) 
I think that reading this novel, I mean, I've read this novel so many times. I think this is the first time I paid attention to the fact that she's full on having like a thought bubble fantasy going on when she hears the word Brighton. And Mr. Bennett, on the other hand, he's thinking, oh, okay, she's going to go. And instead of this fantasy of tenderly flirting with at least six officers (laughs) at once, nobody will pay attention to her. So he says to Lizzie when she's basically pleading with him, please do not let her go. This is going to be a disaster. This is a terrible, terrible idea. And he says with (laughs) the foresight that he's so known for (laughs) at Brighton, she will be of less importance even as a common flirt than she has been here. The officers will find women better worth their notice. Let us hope, therefore, that her being there may teach her her own insignificance. Wow. Yeah. Mr. Bennett gets no prizes for parenting techniques here. (laughs) Really? Not even a little bit. But again, it does at least demonstrate that all of the Bennetts are perfectly aware of like the huge quantities of soldiers that are camped out in Brighton. And so he's just like, oh, yeah, she'll get lost among the number. Just as everyone in this novel is aware, you know, Lizzie's aware when she's told they're going to Brighton, you know, like everybody knows what this means. Mm-hmm. There's there's a reason why Lizzie's worried about Lydia going to Brighton, because she's aware of what the scene is going to be like. And again, Austin's readers would have also been aware. Yeah. I think knowing this about Brighton, the context that, you know, of course, it's the Prince Regent's playground, the fact that there are literally thousands of soldiers there, it just really is the powder keg that's going to set off the Lydia Wickham storyline. And I think I think that that is, it's important context. And to see Lizzie and Mr. Bennett having the conversation that they do, again, the foreshadowing, we can pick that up as modern readers, we can get that. But then you put it back in this historical context and you realize that no, Lizzie is really worried and Mr. Bennett is really not paying attention. <laughs> he just like doesn't want her in the house for, he's just like, oh, this is going to be so great. It's going to be so quiet. I'm going to get so much reading done. It's like, okay, you are, again, not winning any parenting awards. Right. We also see this crop up in one, one other time in Austen's novels. Brighton comes up one more other time by name, and that is in Mansfield Park. And that it's when the Rushworths are going to go on their honeymoon to Brighton. Which, again, it it makes sense in the context of that novel in terms of, like, they're wealthy young people, they're going on their honeymoon, so they're going to go to this place where it's just leisure and pleasure all the time, perhaps foreshadowing some of the temptations that Mariah is going to be facing down in the later part of the novel. Yeah, it's not like, oh, yeah, we spent our honeymoon in the wilds of Scotland or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Just the two of us in a cozy cottage, just really spending time with each other because we're so in love. Like, that is not what's happening. This is, we're going to Brighton where we pretty much don't even have to talk to each other if we don't want to because there's so many other parties and gatherings going on. Which is not to say that because, I mean, obviously Brighton was very popular during this time. So I'm sure there's plenty of people who were also very much in love who also had in Brighton. But I think with this particular Rushworth example, you can definitely draw some connections there. Yeah, especially again, since Austen has used the Brighton reference in Pride and Prejudice before Mansfield Park is published. There's, she set a precedent in her novels for like, "Mm, things happen in Brighton. Just be aware. Be warned. And Brighton is also a really popular setting in a lot of historical fiction, historical romance, since it was Prinny's favorite place. So that's where all the wealthy people gathered. Lots of shenanigans going down. So you definitely see it crop up as a setting in a lot of other books. Yeah, makes sense. It really does. I mean, need a plot point? Take him to Brighton. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so if you're interested in a look into the decorations, and specifically the chinoiserie that was used in the Royal Pavilion in the early 1800s, 
Jane Austen & Co. is hosting a free virtual Zoom session with Dr. Alexandra Losk on March 3rd, 2022. So that's the day that this episode is published. They usually post the recorded sessions on their website, which is www.janeaustenandco.org, all spelt out. So after the event, you can also be on the lookout for that, that recording. It looks like it'll be a fabulous exploration of the exported Chinese wares and their influence on the Prince Regent and the larger, the larger era. You can find us on Instagram at The Thing About Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. We also appreciate everyone who has been clicking that five stars button and leaving us positive reviews on Apple Podcasts. We wanted to share this review from listener Jenna Nev in Australia, who says, Love everything about this podcast. For Austin fans who know her work well, but want a little bit of depth, background, and quirky trivia about the period and the author, shared with humor, warmth, and brevity, which are all excellent traits. Thanks for producing it. Long may it continue. Oh, thank you so much. That is so kind. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll be talking about smelling salts with guest Dr. Emily C. Friedman. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.